you just read the entire chapter of Matthew 23. Isn't that sweet? Don't you love technology? I do. And so if you get one thing out of this whole month of Sunday school as we talk about ethics, we're meeting every Sunday, by the way, including next, which is Easter. If you get anything out of these lessons, I think it's this idea that Jesus doesn't like people like the Pharisees that say, here's the law, um, and here's what it is, and I'm not going to help you work your way through it. I'm not going to help you out. I'm not going to lighten your burden. I'm just going to keep telling you and keep telling you what the rules are, what the moral decision is to do, and not to help you out in any way. I think that's what Jesus was so ticked at the Pharisees. Did you see how ticked, how ticked he was? Yeah, you did. He was like screaming. Did you, just hear, did you hear his voice crack? <laughs> All right, ethics. This month could potentially be, as I've told people what this month is going to be about, people, are going to be, people have said to me, wow, you're going to talk about that? Isn't that opening up a can of worms in different situations that we're going to talk about? And I said, in some ways, yes, but I think we need to open up cans of worms and in such a way, because this is a safe place, I believe, to do that, to open up and to talk about things that are extremely hot topics for today. Not in a mean way. I hope no one leaves here crying or uh, mad or just really passionate about an opposite viewpoint, but I think we can just hear what the Bible has to say about certain ethical problems, moral decisions, moral dilemmas, and so forth. I remember I was talking to a guy a little while ago, probably like two or three years ago, when I lived in Utah, and I was at a coffee shop. And coffee shops in Utah, I think I've told you this before, are strange things, because 70% of Utah is Mormon, and they, 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 uh, they don't drink coffee. And so in a, in a coffee shop in Utah, there's only two types of people. The Christians, you and I, who love coffee and um, are probably all addicted to it, addicted to it and, and the heathens, the people that say, I came out of Mormonism, or I don't care what Mormonism has to say. I don't care that someone says I'm doing bad by drinking this cup of coffee. So anytime you're in Utah, go to a coffee shop and just look around. There's the Christians, and they're the heathens. <laughs> and that's it. That's the only people that are in there. And so I was talking to this guy, um, and we were out of, he, 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 he kind of came up to me, and we had seen each other before, and he pretty much just said, hey, I'm an atheist, would you? And you're a Christian, right? And I said, yeah. And if you don't know what an atheist is, an, an, an atheist is someone that, that says there is no God. An agnostic person says, I doubt the existence of God. But for someone to really say, I am an atheist, means that they say to believe in any type of God is ridiculously silly and dumb. And I'm an atheist. I believe that there is no God. That's what I believe. That's my faith and that there's no God. And so we were talking uh, and about, I mean, we could have talked about anything. For some reason, we started talking about the legalization of marijuana, and um, just going back and forth, I come from the opinion that it's probably not the best thing for society to do. Uh, it should be kept illegal, and he was, was getting irate and saying just wild things and attacking me personally, and then, of course, I did the Christian thing and started attacking him personally. <laughs> <laughs> And it was bad. And he was screaming things like, if we were on a deserted island and I found some hash, you wouldn't let me smoke it, would you? And I was like, what? That's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that as a society, it's not good for society. 
And we went back and forth, and we left really mad at each other. And, and nowadays, if I, ha- if I have a debate with someone that's not a Christian, my whole standpoint is I believe that I win the debate based upon whether this person knows that I love and respect them. And so I've had many conversations since that one that went so horribly wrong that, that I have conversations based upon, I mean, I, just, I had a lunch, I think it was three weeks ago, with a guy that said he was an atheist, came to New Life Church, and then wanted to meet with a pastor and just talk about it. And so I, I met with him, and we talked. We disagreed, obviously, because I'm a Christian, he's an atheist, but we both respected each other. At no point did we raise our voice. At no point did we attack each other uh, personally. And, and he would say something, and I would say, let me see if I hear you right. Are you saying this? And then I would say something, he would say, so you believe that this and this? And I'd say, yeah, we just had a civil conversation. And that's what I hope this Sunday school is going to be, civil conversations about hot topics, not people leaving and crying and screaming in here about and attacking me personally. Sound like a fun time? The, yeah. Here's the definition of ethics. If you're taking notes and I give you these, we call them skillets because it's a Sunday school millet. And I think it's really cool. And so we get these are your notes. If you're writing down definitions of ethics, we are going to use this definition. The analysis, the definition of ethics, the analysis and employment of concepts, the analysis and employment of concepts such as right and wrong, good and evil, and responsibility. The analysis and employment of concepts such as right and wrong, good and evil, and responsibility. Sound like a fun definition? I think so. It sounds very fun to me. The analysis, I'll read it one more time. The analysis of, and employment of concepts such as right and wrong, good and evil, and responsibility. And this, my friends, we're talking about ethics. This is going to be an in-house conversation. What do I mean by an in-house conversation? Well, I mean to say that I am biased. I believe that the Bible is true. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'm assuming, I'm talking to all of you, like you believe that the Bible is true, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that you come from some sort of Christian perspective, Christian background. If you're visiting with us and maybe you don't believe those things, please come visit more. We love visitors in here. But this conversation all month long is going to be held by me, a Christian, and you, uh, I'm assuming that you're coming from a Christian standpoint. And so... We're holding that conversation in such a way, and I think one of our biggest enemies to the Christian understanding of ethics in our culture, 2007, uh, United States of America, is something called situational ethics. It's the problem of situational ethics. And situational ethics is um, the idea that there's no moral, there's no ground for what's right and what's wrong. But all of us in different situations, can choose to do things, whatever we want to do, as lo- because we're justified in the situation. Situational ethics permits each individual his own actions, even fornication or murder, in the light of a particular circumstance rather than an absolute standard that's been predetermined. Because if you talk to people, if you, if you talk to non-Christians, bring them to the thorn and, and uh, talk to them at coffee shops and you're not yelling to them, you'll probably see that they're moral people. They're not just like saying, oh yeah, I love Satan and all that he stands for. That's rare. That's extremely rare that you talk to someone that says that. People that say, oh, my my biggest thing in life is love. 
anything that, that raises love higher is what we should do. Or any, anything that creates the least amount of harm for the most people is what should be ethically correct. And, and, the, and, so, and then they'll give you situations, like this situation or that situation. And they'll say, well, you can't possibly believe in that because what about this? And they'll give you a situation that they've either before or made up. And so I think situational ethics is the biggest problem for today because it says that there's no absolutes. There's no moral ground for right and wrong. And so one of the most famous proofs for this idea is sacrificial adultery. It's, it's, actually, good. it's actually a pretty hard situation to think through. Uh, it gives the example of a German mother of two who's been captured by Russians near the end of World War II. So Germans been captured by Russians. The rules of the Ukrainian prison camp allow her release to Germany only, the, only in the event of pregnancy, in which case she would be released as a liability. So the woman asks, <laughs> the woman asks a friendly guard to impregnate her. She was sent back to Germany and was welcomed by her family, uh, gave birth to the child, and made him part of the family, and they were reunited. So you have this more adultery is wrong. But then you say, well, this, this mother's in a, in a camp, and she wants to get out. And so was it wrong of her to commit adultery to get out of the camp? And so that is the proof, supposedly, for situational ethics, that we can, in different situations, always choose what's right and wrong, not based on a moral, but based upon what we think is right in the situation. And yes, that's extremely hard, rare situation that <laughs> of adultery that is, is just hard, and it's a weird situation. But I think if you're given to situational ethics, you'll say, well, then I, I could steal these flowers and then give them to my wife because it makes her happy. She doesn't need to know that I stole them. It's a right thing to do. It promotes love. And so is the stealing the flowers right or wrong? Well, it's not wrong if you're a situational ethics person because it's making my wife happy, right? If you really go, if you, if you keep holding to the idea of situational ethics, then any, any, in any situation, you can decide what's right and wrong. But as Christians, we believe in something called a moral law because we believe in a moral law giver. Have you ever seen this book before? Mere Christianity. How many of you have read this book? Oh, so many. How many of you, it's one of your favorites? Yes, me too. It's one of my favorites. And here's why. I'm going to basically, and if, you're, if any of you are thinking about reading this book, Please do. It's a great book. It's by C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. The title's kind of a, it's, it's kind of an understatement. Mere, only mere Christianity is the whole idea. He talks about that in the book. And uh, the first 30 pages will, is what will hook you to reading the rest of the book because he provides an argument for ethics based upon a moral law giver. And here's what he starts off with. Page one, he says that we all things such as, how would you like Someone did that to you. Or we say, that's my seat. I was here first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing any harm to you. Give me a piece of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. We all say things like that, right? And rarely, if we say something like that, will someone say, and, and the other person will very seldomly say, to heck with your standard. That's what C.S. Lewis says. So I say, give me a piece of your orange. I gave you a piece of mine. Rarely will you say, to heck with my standard. You may say, it's mine, I want to eat it all by myself, but you, you won't really say, to heck with your standard, right? I mean, think about it. So basically he says that there is a standard. So there's a standard. And then he says, uh, a few pages later, he says, 
if there was a controlling power outside the universe that could not, that it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe. No more than an architect of the house could actually be a wall or staircase or fireplace in the house, right? If there's a standard, then that standard can't just be come from inside, inside the created house, basically. He's saying that there has to be an architect above the house. And the next page he says, that, that means that there has to be a director. So if he says there's a moral law, that there's a standard, then there's a standard maker, a director of that standard. Then the next page he says, we can conclude that the being of this universe is intensely interested in right and wrong. Since, we look at the, since our rules and our, the standard is about goodness, it's about not doing harm, it's about doing good. So he says there's a standard, there's a standard maker, that standard is good. And then he says, after you've realized that, then you realize that you at some point have broken that standard. You have gone against that standard. And then he starts his book, Why, What Christians Believe. It's genius, don't you think? I mean, do you realize that he just proved for you the existence of God? C.S. Lewis, what a man. A hand for C.S. Lewis. Come on. He provides, he says that as Christians, there is a standard. I mean, do you see the geniusness of it? He says that there's a standard. And then you say, yeah, everybody agrees to that. And then he says, well, there has to be a director, a maker of that standard. And then that standard is good. So that's the standard maker has to be good. And then at some point you've broken that standard's rules says, well, here's what Christians believe. Here's how you could get back redeemed with the standard maker. Pretty cool, don't you think? It's genius. It's genius. You should read the book. If you don't read the whole book, read the first 30 pages. See if you're not ready for more after that. All right. Um, so that's what we're talking about all this month, ethics. Now, we have about 25-ish minutes, uh, 20 minutes, actually. And so we're going to talk about abortion, embryonic stem cell research, and then I think that's about all we'll have time for. Um, so are you ready to talk about it? Turn to your neighbor and say, yes, please. <laughs> Some people just woke up. It's okay. Um, at least you're here. I mean, you could have stayed in bed. It's, it's not even yet 10 o'clock. Wait, is it? The big hand's on the... Never mind. I'll figure that out later. Okay, um, where should we begin? Abortion and stem cell research have to do with a, uh, the conception of, excuse me if you haven't taken fifth grade biology, but, uh, or what is it called, sex ed? But when a sperm and an egg unite, what is that called? A zygote, and it's called a zygote. It's called a zygote, it's called an embryo. You can call it a fetus at that point if you want to. Uh, there's, you could call it a blastocyst, I believe, as soon as it, as soon as it splits again. Uh, there's lots of words of what you can call that thing that uh, is in existence after, um, you know, the birds and the bees, right? Right? Okay. And so we have this embryo, this life. Is it alive? Yes, it's alive. The fetus, the, the embryo is alive. Is it human? Yes, it's, it's got all the human chromosomes and so on. Is it going to become a real live human sometime? Yes, we think it is. And so we have this issue of abortion where uh, the life of the fetus, embryo, blastocyst, whatever you want to call it, is ended for some reason. Now, what does the, since we're all Christians, and since I'm a Christian and I'm biased, um, we have to look and see what the Bible says about abortion, right? 
is our standard. Correct. Hello? Yes. Right? Okay, good. And so what does the Bible say about abortion or about stem cell research? Does this keep going on and off? Is it me? Sorry. So does, when was abortion invented? Well, I don't really know. Um, when was stem cell research invented? It was like 1998-ish or something like that. And so neither of these things are directly in the Bible because they really didn't exist in Bible times. But we can conclude from several scriptures about what we should believe about valuing a life at its beginning before it's born. Turn to your Bibles if you have one. If you don't have a Bible, you can. there's Bibles on the table, and I always joke that you can steal those, and it, it's not an ethical problem because I'm telling you that you can have those Bibles. You can steal them. If you, if you need a Bible or if you would like one, you could have one. Turn to Exodus 21. And this is, I mean, out of all the things the Bible could say, this is honestly pretty weird. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of weird things in the Bible, right? Yeah, it's okay. Yes, there are. This is, this is just a weird, I mean, basically the Old Testament, Exodus is giving rules and laws for lots of different things. And then they provide an example of this situation. Out of all situations that could happen, it provides this. Exodus 21, 22 says, if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman, I mean, <laughs> that's just a weird situation. The two men are fighting and they hit a pre pregnant woman. Okay, she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury. The offender must be fined whatever the hus woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, then here it says, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Begin saying, so two men are fighting. We could reenact this if we wanted to up here. And so two men are fighting. It'd be funny, wouldn't it? We don't have time. <clears throat> two men are fighting. Uh, one throws a, a wild kick, and it, and it hits the pregnant woman. And then it says, if that baby dies, if the husband dies, if there's serious injury, you're ta to take life for life. And so I see that. I, I, I really see only, way of an, only one way of an in interpreting this verse is, is when we relate it to abortion, and that there is a living baby inside, and if you take the life, then you're supposed And then it says that there's a life in there. Do you see that as well, that there's a life inside the, the mother and if you kill that life, you're to take life for life. It's kind of, it's pretty obvious, don't you think? I think it's, it's, it's a weird example in the Bible, but it's in there. Another, uh, I'm going to give you two more verses. And these verses are like, um, they're just cool verses about a life being inside a mother's womb. And that's Psalm 139, uh, and then starting in verse 13. And you've probably heard this. You might have heard this verse before. It's kind of popular. It's, uh, I believe, David talking to God, saying, um, verse, verse 13 of Psalms 139 says, For you created my inmost being. And it says, You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Pretty cool, don't you think? God, somewhat, David saying that, God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And then Jeremiah 1.5, another verse similar to that. 
if you want to turn there, you can. This is God talking. Jeremiah 1.5 says, uh, Before I formed you in the womb, it says, I knew you. Doesn't that sound pretty cool? Before I fo- formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Apart, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And so it's, it's God talking to Jeremiah, saying that bef- before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So obviously, if God knew him before that, as he's being formed in the womb, God knew about him. And I've only really, as an in-house discussion of Christians, I've really only heard one, um, one argument, and maybe there's more out there. You could come to me and talk to me afterwards if you know of other arguments that, that say that an unborn child, a child in the womb, is not yet a life. I've only heard one argument from the Bible and it goes something like this. And it was, it was uh, I, I went to seminary for my master's degree. And uh, there was a girl in my class that, that was just always very talkative and kind of loud. And she would say really strong, passionate things and then, and then not really have anything to back them up. Um, you know the type, right? And in every classroom, there's always one. And she, her opinion was that a baby inside the mother's womb is not yet, does not ha- yet have a soul and so is not yet a person, and so it's, abortion is okay, was her, uh, her standpoint. And she's a Christian, and, and she, she goes to, she, you know, she was, she's a Christian. That's what she believed. And so I got to talking to her. We, we broke up and talked about something else into groups, and, and I was talking to her in this group, and I said, so you're saying that, why are you saying that? And she says, well, I'm, t- I'm getting that from Genesis 2-7, where that says, um, Genesis 2.7 says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life, and then the, and then the man became a living being. So she, was, she took from that verse and said, um, because the baby has not breathed a breath, then they are not yet a, a living spiritual being or something was her argument. And so I, I was talking to her, and I always, whenever, whenever there's a hot topic like abortion, and especially if you're talking to a woman, you don't know where, what her background is. Maybe she's talking to you, asking you questions, because she has, had had an abortion herself. And so I was very delicate with the situation. And I said, I asked her, I said, um, um, so you, you would say, let me just see what, if I'm understanding you correctly. You would say, for instance, in the, in the tri-semester, the third semester abortion, when those happen, that the baby is, is half-delivered, and I didn't go into any details. I just said the baby's half delivered, possibly moving arms and legs, and then the baby is is aborted, killed, and then delivered as a dead baby. You would say that that's okay because the baby has not yet breathed the breath of God, breathed the breath of life. And she said, oh, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. That's ridiculous. I would never believe that. And then she quickly changed the subject. <laughs> and then, so that's the only argument I've ever heard from a Christian that says abortion is okay and it com- that comes from the Bible directly because of that argument. Because the baby, even though the baby's not breathing air, it's still breathing oxygen inside the mother's room via umbilical cord, O2. You know how it goes, right? You know about that stuff, right? And so, and so as Christians, I think, as Christians, I mean, there's lots of different takes on abortion, but I think as Christians... As this is an in-house discussion, I really see that there's no way we can look at a baby, a life, and there's all these facts that, that I don't have time to get into about you know, when the heart starts beating and when the babies kick 
and you know that, that there is a human life inside the babe, inside a woman, with the full potential for a real human life to be born. That we can't say, oh, that that's not a human life based upon some wild criteria. I really think as Christians, there's only one that we have to say that the, it's a it's a human life inside the mother, and that that life is to be valued, and that we need to value it as Christians. And so here's the problem. The problem with today is that there are 1.2 million abortions uh, per year. And listen to this, that 22% of known pregnancies are aborted by choice. Isn't that really high? I I had to read that twice. 22% of all pregnancies um, end end by, by choice. And that's a lot to me. Isn't that a lot to you? The question, I think... Um, that I wanted to talk about just really quickly is what happens to these babies that are aborted, these, these embryos, fetuses, whatever we want to call them, inside the mother that, are, that, are, that die, whether it's natural abortion, meaning miscarriage, or uh, abortion by a doctor or whatever. What happens to them? And furthermore, what happens to like a newborn baby as far as going to heaven and, and hell? Has, has anybody ever thought of that before? Like what happens to like a little two-year-old that, that probably doesn't, or even a one-year-old, that probably doesn't have, that, that they can't even talk yet. And so how could they know Jesus or believe in Jesus? They're, you know, they could barely talk. How can they have the faith to believe in Jesus? If, if how we are saved is through Jesus Christ, a faith in Jesus Christ, how can an unborn baby or a little baby less than, say, three years old have the ability to have faith in Jesus? Have any of you ever thought of that problem? Yeah, I know you stay up late at night thinking about those kinds of things because that's what I do. It's fun. And so I've found, um, I've found four, if you want to write these down, I've found four different ideas that I've heard. These are the only four that I've ever heard theologians um, argue that I've only, I mean, you don't have to be a theologian. You just think for yourself. And, and these are four examples of what could happen to the babies, uh, the unborn babies or the babies that are born what happens to them if they haven't chosen Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior? Because they're too, they're too young. One, and this is, uh, I hesitate saying this, but it is an option, that all babies just go to hell. That's number one. And you laugh, and you, it's, it's horrible. Can you imagine telling, never mind, I mean, holding a little baby, he's going to get, never mind. <clears throat> so I don't, obviously, I don't like that option. But it is an option that some uh, mean people like to have. Um, number two, and this one's kind of out there, but I hear, I hear people say, talking about it, and so I'll give it to you. And it says that they're saved by their parents. If the parents are believers, then they're sanctified by their parents. If the parents aren't believers, then they're not sanctified. And there's really only, I can only find one verse that kind of talks about this. If you want to write it down, it's 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, that just says, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, the believing wife. The unbelieving wife uh, has then been sanctified by her believing husband. So that, and then it says, otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Did you even get that? It's, it's, kind of, it's a verse that says, that kind of says that the children are holy if the parents are sanctified. But does holy mean salvation? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't really like that one. I like, the, I like kind of, I mean, there's no way of really knowing. There's no, the Bible doesn't say what happens to babies. You know, Jesus says, have faith like a child, right? So that's pretty cool. But is he talking about like a seven-year-old? Or is he talking about like a one-year-old playing with his thumb? I don't know. <laughs> Probably a seven-year-old. We don't know, though. 
Uh, here's the last two. The last two, uh, number three, is an age of accountability. And this says, and there's no example in the Bible that says any kid above the age of, and some people like to say, oh, it's, it's the age of four. A kid can live up to the age of four, and then after the age of four, they are then accountable for their sins because they have the understanding, the premonition of what's good and evil, and then they be- become accountable for their sin. And some people say that's the age of four. That's, that's the age that my wife likes because she knows uh, a four-year-old, and she became a Christian when she was four. So she likes the age of four. <laughs> but there's really no specific age in the Bible. Some, I've heard people say 11, 11 years old. You could be a little monster running around like crazy until you're 11 and then decide to choose Christ. And I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but it does propose an interesting dialogue for babies or for, you know, it's, it's definitely an option. I kind of like it. It's uh, of the best of the four. I like this one the best. Uh, I like, a, I guess, a combination. Number four is that God knows. And because I am an Arminianist, some of you know what that means, I can say that God foreknew us, foreknew that we would choose him, and that's why he chose us. It's, you know, those, some of you are right with me, some of you are confused. That's okay. That God foreknew that this little baby would choose him, and so since God knew the condition of the baby's heart, the baby goes to heaven because God knew that he, the baby, would choose him. There's, there's some obvious theological problems with that if you carry that out. But, um, but at least it's not number one. Babies go straight to hell. <laughs> so that, just in case you're wondering, those are some um, ideas about babies. So, um, um, and here's something interesting that will also keep you up at night. It kept me up a little bit. <clears throat> and, and so you have to go back to fifth grade when you, when you had sex ed, and there's a, the sperm and the egg, they meet, and then it's, it's called the embryo. And so that embryo, I read some, some studies that say that only 50% of the time does that embryo attach itself to the mother's uterus. If the, if the embryo doesn't attach, obviously it just dies. So 50% of the time, it attaches. The other 50% of the time, it doesn't attach. If it attaches, well then, it, you know, it's, it has the life you know, it could get the umbilical cord and develop properly and all that. If it doesn't attach, then it dies. So 50% of the time, an embryo doesn't attach. So you look around and think, man, if, if every embryo attached, Sunday school would be doubled. <laughs> the world's population would literally be doubled. Think about that. And so in heaven, and this is what kept me up late at night, I was thinking, in heaven, will there be double the amount of people that have ever lived on the earth because of that issue? It's interesting, huh? You're going to stay up and think about that, aren't you? You're like, man, that's, that's good. I didn't think about that. Um, <clears throat> but let's specifically talk about abortion and then some solutions, and then I think, I think we'll be done. I don't think we can get into stem cell research today. But next week, I mean, what better Easter topic than stem cell research? <laughs> We, we were going to cancel Sunday school, but, I mean, we got stem cell research to talk about on Easter Sunday. Why not? You know, it's all about life. And then we'll also talk about uh, the death penalty. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Easter, everybody. <laughs> you know, maybe we'll do an Easter egg hunt, too. That will be fun. Kind of tie it all together. <clears throat> uh, okay, so here's the problem with abortion. Uh, and we like to say, if you're talking to someone that's, that's pro-abortion and you're pro-choice, they may like to bring examples like oh well what if the woman has been raped what if the woman what if the woman has gotten pregnant horribly by incest what if 
the, the baby that's in the womb, they look inside with the, what's it, the gyroscopes, what's the thing called? Ultrasound. And, uh, and they, <laughs> come on, you know what I'm talking about. And see that the baby is, has, has abnormalities. Or what if uh, the, the doctor says, well, you're going to have some problems giving birth, and it's probably going to come down to you or the baby, and you should, get the, you should get an abortion because if you don't, there's a really good chance that you're going to die giving birth to this baby. And so all of those add up to 1% of all abortions. 1% of all the abortions. That's a really small number in considering that there's 1.2 million abortions that happen per year. All of those situations are a mere 1% of those abortions. Uh, 50% of people, women that got an abortion, said that they didn't want to be a single parent and had problems in their current relationship. uh, 66% of uh, mothers that got an abortion stated that they could not afford the child. 75% answered the question that they said the child would interfere with their lives. And so we have a problem because what we have is basically a crisis pregnancy. When someone that that didn't want to get pregnant got pregnant, and then they're, they're, they're left with a decision, probably a lot of times left in in poverty or the you know the the boyfriend or husband whatever isn't around and so the the mother considers abortion and these are crisis pregnancy situations and we as Christians I think need to have compassion on a mother that's in a crisis pregnancy situation and there's a lot of really cool ministries out there like crisis pregnancy um, uh, organizations and 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 what CPC. Oh, centers. That's what I was going to say. Sometimes you forget the strangest words. Um, and so there's a lot of ministries out there. I think our job as Christians is not to, and, and so trying to find a solution to abortion, because we as Christians would say, you know, we got to protect that little baby. And I was, in a fu- I was at a funeral just a, a couple weeks ago, and a dad had died. Uh, a, a man had died, and he, he was a husband, and he was a dad, and the pastor looked at the, at the wife, and at, the, at, the, at the, um, the girls that had lost their dad and said, God is biased towards you. God is, our God is the God of widows, of the fatherless, of those that need help. Our God is biased towards you. And I was thought, man, yeah, God is biased. God especially likes widows. God especially likes the fatherless. God especially likes people that really need help and are in bad situations. And so as Christians, we would all say, that that life that doesn't have a say in the world, that that life inside the mother's womb, that we need to look out for that because it can't look out for itself, that God is possibly biased towards that little, that little baby inside the mother. And so we need to find a solution for all these abortions that are happening. But I don't think that the solution is to, to make big protests that say, you know, you're a baby killer if you've had an abortion. Is, is abortion an unforgivable sin? If you're talking to someone, a woman that's had an abortion, you know, you, you talk to her with the most love and the most compassion that you possibly can and say, I'm sorry that you had to make that decision. I'm sorry, you know, I'm just, I feel bad for your situation. You don't tell them, well, you're a baby killer. I mean, is that our role as Christians? What the heck? Who the heck do we think we are? You know, that's not what Jesus would do. That's not WWJD, right? No, I don't think so. I think as Christians, we need to look for solutions um, for abortion, because we do need to look for solutions, and I think we do, since we live in a democracy, and um, 
Democracies, I think, are pretty cool. Um, but democracies make laws happen very slowly. There's things that we can do as Christians that aren't standing on the corner. And thank God there's laws that say you have to be so far from an abortion clinic to protest, to scream baby killer. Thank God there's laws like that to protect us dumb Christians that want to terrorize people in, in desperate situations. Um, I think some of the, there's lots of different solutions. I, I, I've, I was thinking of a few, and I think that we could pass laws that, that, and there have been laws passed that say that there's a 24-hour period before an abortion has to be, has to, to, a woman goes in for an abortion, and she has to wait 24 hours before, um, before actually going through the surgery. I think that's a good thing. So you can't just make a split decision and a decision that you might regret. regret. Um, parental consent of a minor so that a person less than, let's say, 16 years old doesn't have to make this choice all by herself. Um, exposure to information about abortion. Educational laws to reduce abortion at its source. I think is our role as Christians because we can't talk to someone that's had an abortion and say, oh, you just made the unforgivable sin. We have to say, we have to have compassion on everyone. We have to say, you know what, you were in a desperate time and you made this decision and and maybe you regret it, maybe it wasn't the best decision, but Jesus is with you. Jesus, we have to say as Christians, Jesus is with that baby, right? We have to have compassion on people. And yeah, we just do. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray right now for for mothers right now thinking about abortion. Jesus, we just pray that you will have compassion on them. You will have compassion on the lives that are in their stomachs, God. God, that somehow, that's, that, that right now, as, as we as the Mill Sunday School pray, that God, you might be helping a mother through this situation. God, in the, in the event of a crisis pregnancy, God, would you maybe even let us be the shepherds, be um, just your light in these situations, that me, we might talk to a person considering abortion, that you might allow us to do that, and that we might have just compassion, love on this mother considering abortion. And so, Jesus, we just praise you for life. We thank you for life, Jesus. We thank you for Easter. And without any joking, God, we say that we love you, and we love that you died for us on Easter Sunday, and we could celebrate that. We could talk about ethical issues on Easter Sunday because you are arisen. You have rose from the grave, and we love that about you, Jesus. We love that you gave us life. And so we worship you. We praise you, God. And everybody said, amen. All right, everybody. See you next Sunday on Easter.